The rest of us are going to be in Romans chapter 13 in our Bible, so if you want to go ahead and turn there. And as you're turning to Romans 13, I'm curious to know how many of you would consider yourselves morning persons. If you're a morning person, raise your hand. I have to kind of go halfway. Not too many. There were more morning people in the first service. Imagine that. (laughs) I may be dumb, but I ain't stupid. (laughs) Well, I don't know how to break this to you, but if you're a Christian and you want to live a Christ-honoring life and you want to grow in sanctification and spiritual growth, you have to be a morning person. Pause, pause, pause but not literally. (laughs) But figuratively speaking, we're going to see this morning that we most certainly need to be mourning people if we're going to be living lives that honor Christ, if we're living Christian lives. And if you read this passage with me, I think you'll see what I mean. So let's go ahead and work through verses 11 to 14 in Romans chapter 13, and you'll see. Verse 11 says, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Indeed, you have to be a morning person. This is calling you to be a morning person. Not literally per se, but from your perspective of living, you're motivated to get up and to act appropriately and to not slack off and sleep in, so to speak. And so what we're going to do this morning is look at this a little bit closer, and as we do so, what we're going to highlight in this passage, I think they're the two major themes that are highlighted, and they're related, we'll be seeing two gospel-produced expectations, two gospel-produced expectations for all Christians. What does the gospel produce in your life? What kind of expectation does it produce? And that's what we'll look at this morning. Number one, we'll see that it is knowing the time. Knowing the time is a gospel-produced expectation that you know the time. The second one, living soberly in light of the time. First expectation, that you know the time. Second expectation in light of the first is that you live soberly in light of the time. Now, before we jump into it and get any further I purposely said gospel produced, purposely because of where these commands come in Romans. We have to remember, and I might be a broken record on this, but I'm going to keep letting the record skip. We have to remember that these commands that we're seeing in the book of Romans are commands that are to Christians, people who believe the gospel, not Christian in a cultural sense, but in a biblical sense. This is for you and for me if we believe the gospel, not, not this. Let me put it this way. These are not 
general commands written to all people of all time as general guiding principles to help you to be a better person. Please don't read these verses or please don't hear anything I have to say this morning in that sense. Okay, what we hear in Romans 13, these commands to live a certain way are not commands for all people just to generally help them to be better people. These are not proverbs. These are written commanding Christians to live a certain way. Christians in the biblical sense, not the cultural sense. The gospel has brought this about. And here's what I mean by that. The gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ obeys the law of God perfectly, the law of God that I break and that you break. That's good news because He did that for me if I believe in Him. That Jesus Christ died a sinner's death. He went to the cross and experienced the judgment of God, the judgment I deserve as a sinner. A sinner is a lawbreaker. And that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. Among other things, proving that God the Father was satisfied with His sacrifice, the sacrifice He made for me if I'm a believer. Okay, that's Christianity. Christians believe this. Christians trust in Christ, not in self. Okay, this is the the very basics of what it means to be a Christian. If and when that happens, there's a logical question that comes. So then how should I live? If, if the work of Christ is paid for my sins and, and if the, the, the perfection of Christ has been credited to me so that now God is accepting of me and He wasn't before, it's a free gift, Christians say, because the Bible says, and it's grace, which means free gift, then the logical question is, oh, then what should I do? How then would you have me to live having given me such a great gift, God? Well, This passage tells us, at least in part, how we're supposed to live as Christians. And so that's what I mean by gospel-produced expectations. And I go through all of that because, in all likelihood, some of you are not Christians. And so, I'm glad you're here, but I don't want you to get the wrong idea. Okay? What you're going to hear today is how Jesus Christ calls people who've believed in Him for salvation... To live. What you're not going to hear is how we should all live so that God will eventually accept us. No, this is in the context of all of Romans. The beginning of Romans, Christ pays for our sins. Christ gives us His perfection, His righteousness that makes us acceptable to God. Christ rises again from the dead so that we can live new lives. And now we say as Christians, well then how should we live? How should we show our gratitude? How should we live in light of this? And so that's what you're going to hear. If you're not a Christian, you're just hearing how Christians are supposed to live. Our desire for you is that you'd become a Christian so that you would then have the same desire the rest of us have. But following these things are not the ways to become a Christian. Okay? This is how you live if you are a Christian. I don't think we can emphasize that enough lest we get confused and we come up with a different religion other than Christianity. Well, with that in mind... He's assuming that we've already went through the gospel. That's the early chapters of Romans. Now we say, okay, how should we live? What does the gospel produce in us? Well, number one, it produces in us a knowledge of the time. Look at verse 11 with me, if you would, where he says, Besides this, you know the time. 
writing to Christians, people who believed in Christ, he says, besides this, you know the time. Besides this, pointing to what he said before, probably all the way back to chapter 12, where he's telling us how we're supposed to live as Christians. He's been telling us how to live as Christians since chapter 12, telling us our whole life should be an act of worship to Christ for what he's done for us. But then he says, and besides this, let me tell you even more about how to live if you're a Christian. Knowing the time. There's something important about time for us as Christians, and he assumes we know it. There's something important for us as Christians related to time, and he assumes that we know something about urgency, something about time. We know the time. Well, you might not know what he's talking about. We'll get to it, but let's keep working through verse 11. That the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. A great metaphor. There's something about time, and you know what? It's time to get up. It's time to get out of bed. It's time to awake from sleep, he says. What is it about this time that would move us? Verse 11 then answers that question. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. He's using all these metaphors for godliness, for doing the right thing. And he's saying, get up, wake up. This isn't a time for slumbering. This isn't a time for, for, for laxity. This isn't a time for being passive in your living. Wake up. Why? Because salvation is nearer to you now, Christian, than when you first believed. What does that mean? He's assuming we know what it means. He's assuming we know what it means because he talked about it earlier in Romans. If you turn to Romans 8, he talks about this ultimate salvation that we'll experience as Christians. He'll talk about this this matter of one day when Christ returns, we're not going to struggle with our sin anymore. One day when Christ returns, our bodies aren't going to be broken anymore. One day when Christ returns, the earth isn't going to be in chaos like it is so much of the time now and so that's romans 8 and he's expecting us to remember romans 8 and he's saying look wake up ethically be alert knowing the time you know the time salvation is nearer to you than when you first believed we might say it's ultimate salvation the 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 final culmination of our salvation when everything gets fixed that isn't fixed now. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. You can see what I mean there. It's just a great text to write in the margin of Romans 13, verse 11, because he's really relying upon our knowledge of this. Back in Romans 8, we learned in verse 18, for I consider that the suffering of the present time, the sufferings of the present time, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There's something future. There's something we're waiting for. He's talking to people who are already Christians, but he's saying we're waiting for something even fuller for the creation verse 19 says waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of god for the creation was subjected to futility not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope that all the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of god we're going to keep reading in just a moment but just to kind of review in case you weren't here for that part of our study quite some time ago he's talking about this fullness of our salvation that we're waiting for and you know what we're not the only ones waiting for it 
metaphorically speaking, even the created order itself is waiting. Just like as you, even as a Christian, are just waiting for the struggle to be over, when you see Christ and you're made like Him, as the Bible would say elsewhere, as you're waiting for all the pains and aches and all of the stuff that's going on with your broken body to be over when you get a glorified body, just as we're waiting for that, He's saying you're in partnership with the created order. Just as you go, oh, more sorrow, more pain. It's as if the creation is joining you saying yes. Oh, when is it going to get fixed? And it's tied again and again in Scripture and in Romans 8 to the return of Christ. When we see Him and we'll be made like Him, He's assuming we all know this from chapter 8. Let's keep working our way through some of the verses there in chapter 8. We're waiting for the glory. 23 says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, he's already talked about these things. We're already saved in Romans. We're already sons. We're already heirs. But we're eagerly waiting for the fullness, for the culmination of all of these things. They've all been secured by Christ and what He's already done. But upon His return, we will enter into the fullness of our salvation. And He's saying to us clearly in Romans chapter 13, knowing the times, that salvation is closer to you now than when you first believed. Wake up. Wake up. Now, isn't it interesting the Bible speaks about salvation past, present, and future? I don't want to get too far off track, but it does. Sometimes the Bible talks about being saved, having been saved. It's completed, rescued from the judgment of God based upon the merits of Jesus. But then sometimes it talks about how we are being saved continually growing spiritually, being transformed by Christ and His work, and then we will be saved. Final judgment. We're going to be spared from the wrath of God. If you're reading your Bible very much, you've already noticed this, and to see how that's all centering on Christ and working together, but you do see all three. Past, Romans 8.24, we were saved. Present, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 2, you are being saved. Future here in Romans 13, 11, that we will be saved. We see all three tied together. Well, continuing on with the matter of urgency, back in Romans 13, now we go to verse 12. This timing thing we're all supposed to know about, because we all know about Romans 8. Verse 12 says, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. Notice the, the flavor of, of imminence of expectancy. The night is far gone. All of these time references and the night is not only far gone, the day, not just coming, he says, the day is at hand. There, there, there's this reality of imminence. Christ is returning. We're, we all know this. He's assuming we know this. Whether we know it or not, we should know it. The gospel produces this in us. Romans 8. And so, Christians, because we believe the gospel, are waiting for the return of Christ where he, he brings about and completes and fulfills all of the promises that are ours in Him. So there's eagerness, there's expectancy. I think about kids, all right? Little kids on Christmas Eve. 
licking their chops. It's waiting. Getting up at oh dark 30. Mom and dad are going, come on already. And they're up at 5.30 and they're up at 6 because they want the presence, imminence, expectancy. A bride, a groom waiting for that day. Waiting. I remember laying in my bed in the hotel room looking at the ceiling just waiting for the day, the next day to get married. And there's this expectancy going on vacation and you're all packed and the car is ready to go and you're going to get up at 5.30 and you can't go to sleep and it's 12.30 because you're waiting for the excitement of going on vacation finally. Well, as Christians, we of all people should have an expectancy that dwarfs all of those others because we are eagerly anticipating and waiting no more brokenness. No more suffering, no more pain where we will be saved in the ultimate sense. We're waiting for that. It's expected that we're waiting for that. We are not, as Christians, people who believe that history is merely and entirely and always going in circles. It's going somewhere. We know that it's going somewhere because Jesus didn't die and stay rotting in the grave. That he rose again from the dead and not only did he rise from the dead, he ascended. And then we hear in the early chapters in the book of Acts chapter 1, as a matter of fact, that he will return in the same way he left. Christians know this. Sometimes we forget. But Christians are supposed to know this. And so that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing that kind of emphasis, this expectancy. It's time to wake up. It's time to be a morning person, at least spiritually speaking. And before we move on to what's related to it, to number two, I'll have to just tell you I'm really glad for this passage. I'm glad for this passage. It's dealing with what we technically call uh, eschatology. Eschatos, eschaton, the coming, the return, the end. I'm thankful for this passage because it reminds me that our belief about Christ's return leads to motivation for our living in the here and now. And he's going to get to that part in just a little while. But I'm thankful for that and maybe this is a confession that I'm making to you because sometimes I get a bad taste in my mouth in churchianity when it comes to what's called eschatology because there's so much speculation and there's so much as one old Bible teacher used to say so much future snooping trying to figure out every single detail of everything maybe things the Bible isn't so clear on maybe if the Bible were so clear we would all agree and so sometimes I just think you know what I've just about had it with eschatology talk to people who know everything about how to draw the perfect chart down to the wire and they've got it all figured out and you ask them to explain what justification is and they either don't know or they give the wrong answer and I think you know what I just I I don't really need eschatology you know what I'm going to focus on the gospel which is supposed to be of first importance anyway but that would be out of balance to throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, to overreact. And we have a tendency to overreact, and I do that. I'm thankful for expository preaching today. 
I'm thankful that I had to preach through Romans chapter 13 because it's a little tug in saying, hey, Pat, eschatology. It affects the way you live. And some of you are in the same boat that I'm in, and you're smiling saying, yep, this is helpful. He expects that we know, maybe not all the details of minutia. You don't need to know all the details of minutia to understand what he's getting at here. We're waiting for the time when he returns where we have all of our issues fixed. It's tied to the gospel. It's the fruit of the gospel. We're waiting to enter into the fullness of our salvation. And we know this time and that time should cause us to say, I'm waiting. I'm expectant. I'm anticipating. And now we're going to see that it's going to have an impact on the way we live. It impacts our morality. And as we do that, we might even want to turn it upside down or backward or reverse the logic. We have no place for eschatology because of our overreactions. It's probably going to have have an effect on our morality. Because we start thinking like Jesus isn't ever going to come back. It's going to affect the way we live in the here and now when it comes to our godliness. I know that that's true because in this passage, the two are connected. He's coming back, live a certain way. Instead of, well, he's, he didn't come back yesterday. So he must not be coming back tomorrow. I'll kind of pretty much do what I want to do. Well, that's not how we want to think. Let's move on now. Maybe that was just for my benefit. I don't know. Thanks for letting me preach to you. It's good for my spiritual growth. <laughs> Don't know why you guys keep showing up, but uh, I'm sure glad you do because the Lord is working in my life. <laughs> Second gospel-produced expectation, and that would be that living soberly comes as a result of knowing the time. Living soberly comes because we know the time. And now we see this in verse 12, the latter part. So then, in light of the time that is to come, So then, let us cast off the works of darkness. Notice the time-sensitiveness of this whole kind of image. Cast off. You've got to get rid of it. You've got to throw it away. A work of darkness. He's using that image as if it's something you're wearing as a piece of clothing and you can't get it off fast enough. You want to tear it off. Why? Because you're waiting for the fullness of your salvation, which means you're waiting to meet Jesus Christ face to face. And you know what? Having pardoned you, having forgiven you, having declared you right, One thing you don't want to be caught with would be immorality. To dishonor him when you meet him. And so he uses this vivid language of getting these clothes off, these these works of darkness. And and just imagine getting something nasty on your clothes. I'm going to let your imagination run wild. Something that you would think is disgusting, something that has a smell like no other smell, and it's gross, and what do you want to do post-haste? You want to get that shirt off. You want to get your pants off. You want to get those clothing off, pieces of clothing off because it's gross. Cast off the work of darkness. Get rid of those things. You have the, the urgency going on. Quickly. Now, if he's not thinking of soiled garments, maybe he's just 
thinking of this, this urgent, urgency idea that you just need to get your sleeping clothes off. Get your pajamas off. You know what it's like to have uh, your alarm go off or how about not go off? And you roll over and open one eye and look at the clock. <gasps> I'm late! Oh no, job interview. Oh no, finals. Oh no, I gotta be at work. Oh no, I've gotta pick somebody up from the airport or whatever it is. And you scramble out of bed like nobody's business. And you get your pajamas off so fast, it's absolutely amazing. No time for anything because there's something urgent that needs to be tended to. Well, that's what's going on here. Heart rate is pumping. Heart rate is racing. Why? Because you've got to get these clothes off to get those clothes on because there's something really important going on. Well, how about the most important thing on planet Earth to you if you're a Christian? You're about to meet your maker. Better yet, you're about to meet your redeemer. And so you're eager. You're living in light of the time. And it's an urgent kind of living. I remember being a little kid. It was funny. I said this in the first hour. And then I said, should I say the second hour or not? It's not in my notes. They all voted yes. So if you don't like this, blame them. And then it's even funnier that my sister's here to the service because it has to do with her. So... I remember being a little boy, you know, I don't know, maybe six, six years old, starting to get kind of private, you know, I'm a boy, leave me with my space, and I remember we got a hamster or a, a guinea pig or something, sitting in the bathroom, and we put our feet together, put your legs out, put your feet together, and it plays in between your legs and playing around, I remember whatever it was, the hamster went up my pant leg. And I freaked out as fast as I could. I didn't care if my sister was in the room. I took my pants off as fast as I could because it was an emergency. And I didn't care what anybody thought, even my big sister. Well, think in these terms. Who cares what anybody thinks at you acting so passionately and so fervently to get rid of sin because it's time-sensitive? Not because you have a hamster in your pants. <laughs> but because you know the time. You know the time. And so this is not, therefore, the time for caring about what other people think. You're ready to act and act extremely if necessary. Because the most important day of your life in one sense yet to come is coming. It's a great, great, vivid, forceful, time-sensitive image. Get rid of the filth of sin. Then he moves on to the positive aspect in verse 12, at the end there, and put on the armor of light. Military image. It's just metaphor after metaphor and we get the idea military image get rid of the sleeping clothes the soiled clothes and put on the armor of light light being used obviously for positive uh, righteousness christ honoring living you know it's get your armor on somebody's making the announcement in the camp we've been invaded or whatever it is and so what do you do you scramble around for your armor to get your armor on because it's not time for, you know. You get your armor on and you're ready to go to battle. Symbolic here of righteousness. 
godliness, living now in a way that honors Jesus Christ and it doesn't dishonor Him. Because when He returns, you want Him to see you acting like a Christian if you are one. Acting like you've been redeemed. Acting like you've been forgiven. Acting like Romans chapter 6. You've been united with Him and you've died to sin and you're now living to righteousness. And so it's this great image of getting your armor on. It's filled with energy. It's startling. It's graphic. It's not passive. One person put it this way. Christian living in light of the gospel in past work and guaranteed future consummation is to produce a spiritual readiness that is striking. You're on alert. Be vigilant. It's noticeable. If someone in the military is getting their armor on, it's probably a sight to be seen if there's an emergency. These are not peace times, according to the analogy. And now what happens is, he's been kind of speaking in generalities. If this is all we had to go on, it would be helpful. We'd get the idea. Metaphors, pictures. He's going to keep using metaphors, but now he's really going to hone in and helping us as Christians to know, having known the time, to know how to live in light of the time. Now we're going to get real specific. Now he's going to get in your face, so to speak. Verse 13 says, Let us walk properly. Common biblical image for conduct. Walk properly. Your walk. As in the daytime. And then he gives the list, and the list is related. You don't want to completely separate each one of these things, but we will separate them and see that they do connect. And then he says, first on his list, not in orgies. That's not a word I use in my vocabulary. None of you probably use it either. But we know what he's talking about if we think first century. An orgy. It's a place where there's no self-control. It's a place where you indulge. It's a place where you indulge without any restraint. It's a place where you do what you want to do sexually with whom you want to do it, and there are no boundaries. It's a place where you eat what you want to eat, and however much of it you want to eat, no boundaries. It's a place where we don't talk or think about guilt. Free, free, free. It's a place where you say whatever it is you're thinking. It's a place where you say whatever it is you want to say. And you say whatever it is you want to say to whomever you want to say it. That's the orgy idea. The, the opposite would be self-control. It's the place where there is no self-control. And so he, has, he says, put on the armor of light. No orgies. No, just doing whatever you want as long as it feels good, it's right, and you have no guilt. He's saying, no. If you want to make it the positive, you're putting on self-control. And Christians, how about of all people, should be able to have self-control because after all, by virtue of the gospel, we've been given the Spirit of God to indwell us, Galatians 5, and the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. 
And so he's calling us to live like Christians. Why? Because Jesus is coming back. Therefore, I don't want to be one who is given to just doing whatever I want without any limitations whatsoever because that's not fittingly Christian. So it's a good image after all. There's a certain seriousness in other words. One thing you wouldn't be at an orgy in the first century is serious. There's a certain sobriety about life. Are there checks here? Is there self-control in my life? Or do I just do whatever I want whenever I want to do it? Maybe in the name of freedom in Christ. Next, he says, and drunkenness, which we can't really separate from the first word. Again, excess. I just drink however much I want to drink. I don't have to think about self-control. Sometimes been done in the name of being a Christian. Well, self-control in how much you drink. Why? Because you know the time. And that wouldn't be responsible to be a drunk. And then he moves on. Not in sexual immorality. Let's couple that together with the next one, and sensuality. Not with lack of self-restraint. You have morals and you live by your morals. Not to get you saved because you are saved. And so again, you live like a Christian when it comes to your sex life. Which would be to have sex with your husband or wife if you are married. Why? Because you know the time. Because you know the time. Not quarreling and jealousy. I kind of smirk because he put those on the list. Because some of us think, oh yeah, those bad people do those other things. And they're so bad. Did you hear what so-and-so did? Oh, I can't believe what they did. <gasps> Maybe we should talk about what they did. <gasps> And now we're looking like these people at the end of the list. (laughs) It's a time for godly living. It's not a time for arguing with other people and quarreling and being that person. Get over it. You know the time. Stop having arguments with these people and, and wasting all this time because you know the time. Stop being so bugged that other people have better things than you do and being jealous. No doubt his list could have gone on based upon his other lists. Whether their sexual sins or these kind of self-control sins or their social sins, he's saying, stop it already, right? Not to become a Christian, but because you are a Christian. And you are expecting Christ to return so you don't have any aches and pains anymore, so you don't have any more struggle. Knowing the time. I think that might be a good little uh, reminder that we might be able to use. Knowing the time. So as you hear Pat complaining about someone, all you need to say to me is, knowing the time. <laughs> might be helpful. In other words, shut up, Pat. Jesus is coming. Act like a Christian. But you don't need to say that. <sighs> knowing the time. A 
affects the way we talk and affects the way we live. Knowing the time. Knowing the time. Stop with the pornography already. Knowing the time. That's sexual immorality. What are you thinking? Knowing the time. What's with no self-control in your life? Knowing the time. If we are thinking about the time that we do know about, it's going to affect the way we live. Now, I think it's way overused and trivialized. But it's actually decent. Maybe we need to find a different way to say it, which is why I'm saying knowing the time. But you know people who pose the question, if you knew Jesus was going to come back tomorrow, how would you live for the next 24 hours? And there's something in me that just hates that. I don't know why. I I just, maybe because of eschatology fantasy land or something. I don't know. It just seems like such a trivial kind of thing. But it's actually right. (laughs) There's a real reality of imminence. And if I'm supposed to be living in light of the time that I know is coming, you know what? It should affect the way I live right now. We're going to meet the King. We're going to meet the Redeemer. I need to live a certain way. I need to live soberly. Doesn't mean I have to live as a legalist, but I live soberly. And I don't just mean in a literal sense about avoiding drunkenness. The whole tenor of this whole thing is I live soberly. There's a certain degree of seriousness to my living. Not that you're a killjoy and there's never any fun and no joy. We find all kinds of joy in Christ in the Bible. Doing all things for the glory of God. But there's certainly a measure of seriousness because we know the time. And that's what we want to take to heart. You know, to the degree that I keep this in my mind, I'm not going to go home and do shameful things that dishonor Christ. Right? To the degree that you keep this in your mind, you're not going to go and do shameful things. Knowing the time. Christians are to live expectantly. We could go to some of the parables where Jesus talks about this as well. We're not going to take the time to do that. Imminence. Be ready. And what's the key to all of this? The key to all of this is in verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as he said, put on the armor of light. Well, now he's saying it a different way and helps us understand what he means by put on the armor of light. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Clothe yourself with Christ. Put him on. Cover yourself in Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Literally, to gratify its lusts. Now, I like verse 14 a lot. It's was one of the first 10 verses I ever memorized as a brand new Christian. And I think this verse kept me out of some sin. I would be in a place where I would be tempted to sin in a certain way, and I would repeat this verse. 
I can remember one very vivid time repeating this verse, repeating it again and again. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. Even that's the way I memorized it. And that was helpful. I commend scripture memory to you. But I didn't really know what it meant. (laughs) Sometimes God's word is amazing and it keeps us from sin even in our ignorance. I was so busy memorizing and reciting and it's truth that I... It spared me, and I'm thankful for that. But I think it can even be more helpful to you and more helpful to me if we think a little bit more about what he means. This seems to be the key to unlocking this sanctified kind of life. Maybe we should look at it uh, backward first and then in the lens of a quotation. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires or its lusts. By the way, the word for lust translated desire in the translation I'm using, epithumia, it's strong desire, it's passion. It can be used positively or it can be used negatively. The context here is obviously negative. So I've got to provide no provision. I don't want to provide for my strong bad desires. I want to starve them, so to speak. But how do I do that? And I think how I do that is in the first part. Putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't just say, say no to sin, say no to sin. Don't provide opportunity for sin. There's the positive, not just the negative. And that is put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Clothe yourself in Christ. But I still kind of have it floating. It's still a little nebulous in my mind. You all are smarter than I am, so you got it all wired. I know, and I preach for my benefit, but anyway, <laughs> still kind of out there, still a verse I memorized, but I don't really, what does it mean to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, cover myself with Christ and that kind of stuff? Yeah, but still, help me out. No provision. How do I not provide? Well, I, I put on Christ. I read every commentary I had on Romans. I think I probably have, I don't know, 20 commentaries on Romans, and I was still asking myself the question, what does this mean? What does this really look like in my life? It's really hard to teach something you don't understand. (laughs) It's hard to apply something you don't understand. I'm still kind of going, I don't quite get it. And I remembered a a quotation from C.S. Lewis. Not my favorite author in the world, but has written some profound things. It helped me. If it helps you, then it's free. Listen to this quotation, and then we'll try to flesh it out a little bit more. What does it mean to put on Christ and thereby... This isn't the quotation, I'm just setting it up. What does it mean to put on Christ and thereby not provide provision for the strong bad desires? Maybe you've heard this Lewis quotation before. And maybe not. Here's what he says. Not about this verse, but it's about Jesus in general in the Gospels. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires... Not too strong, but too weak. We are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleasured. Our problem isn't our strong passions and desires, our epithumias, translated lusts. 
And we just need to not be so passionate, so strong in our desires, and then we're going to starve sin. Lewis suggests, actually, we need to be stronger in our desires. We need to be stronger in our desires ultimately for Christ and for His honor and for His glory. And we'll understand then what we really desire and what we really want and what is really fulfilling. It's the putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's saturating yourself in gospel truth and gospel reality. And before you know it, you're amazed by grace. You're amazed by Christ and what He's done for you. And that becomes your desire, your epithumia, your passion. I don't want to use the word because it has a negative connotation, but it's the word translated lust. You desire these great, great holidays at the sea because you've tasted them and you see you don't want to be making mud pies in the slum. I think, for me, that is helpful. I want to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to see Him for all that He is in the gospel. I want to do that, and that is glorious, and that is great, and that is grand. grand. And by putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, I therefore am making no provision for the flesh in regards to its epithumias, and regarding its lusts, its passions. And I think that's the best way for me to get my mind around what he's getting at here. So what does it mean to put on the Lord Jesus Christ? To cover yourself with Christ? Well, Christ is associated with His work, with His person, with His promises, with His gospel. And so practically, I'm going to put on the Lord Jesus Christ by covering myself, my mind, filling my mind with the truth about Christ. What did Christ do? What is Christ doing now, even for me? What has Christ promised to do in the future who is jesus christ to make these grand promises and i start filling my mind with the truth about the lord jesus christ and i find him magnificent i find him matchless i find him beyond comprehension when it comes to lovely like a holiday at the sea it just doesn't get any better I'll stay out of the mud. I think it's similar to what the writer to the Hebrews says. Using a different analogy, a different image, not putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, but the same idea when he says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, or the faith. That's the key to sanctification. That's the key to perseverance. That's the key to expectancy because Christ is going to return. I've got my eyes riveted on Christ. Not some painting, not some icon, not some kind of strange image I've conjured up in my head. What does he mean? No doubt I've got my eyes fixed on Christ, the person of Christ, the work of Christ, the promise of Christ. What he has done, what he is doing now at the right hand of his father, interceding on my behalf, what he is yet going to do. And before you know it, self-control is good and right. Drunkenness doesn't really have such a great appeal. I've lost myself in Christ, in his greatness. 
following my own sinful passions, they seem to be less and less the more I can get my eyes fixed on Christ. It's not a gimmick. It's not a series of steps. I would even suggest to you it's not easy because we forget Christ. Easily we forget Christ. Fixing your eyes on Jesus. Putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we want to do. Knowing the time. Knowing the time. You will see him if you're a Christian. You'll be made like him. Waiting for that. Let's be in the habit of saying to each other, knowing the time. We'll live differently. We'll have less gossiping, less complaining, less arguing, less immorality, less drunkenness, knowing the time. We're going to meet our great Savior. We want to honor Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this morning and our time together. I'm thankful for biblical eschatology. It's to affect the way we live, affect the way we act. I pray for the men and the women who are here today, the boys and girls, that we would have a good, healthy reminder today that we would be thinking about Christ and His beauty, thinking about Christ and His power, thinking about Christ and His mercy and His grace, that our eyes would be fixed on Him, that we would be putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and that we would find sin less and less attractive and we would find Christ more and more magnificent and that we would see great things happen in our midst as a result of that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.